Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. We'll begin in prayer. If you could please stand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of the faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your divine love. Send forth your spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who instructs the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant by the same Spirit to have a right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his consolation. Through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Deacon Ted. Please welcome Dr. Timothy O'Donnell. Thank you, Thank you, Deacon. I can't tell you how overjoyed I am to be here and to be with Deacon Sabatino, so proud of the Institute of Catholic Culture and what it is doing here. So whenever I can, it is a great grace for me to be here with you. So once again, I just want to express my gratitude for the opportunity and what a joy it is to be with you all. And thank you for your fidelity for caring enough to come three times in a row. That's very impressive. I wasn't joking about penance and more penance. Anyway, here we are. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. Okay. Just kidding. Sorry, honey. Okay, a quick recap on sort of what we've been doing. We did invoke the Holy Spirit, so I think we're in. Right? So I think we're in, so we can go ahead and look at that. But we started off talking about the prologue. Do you remember that? Those first 18 verses, which were a summary of the entire gospel. Right? Then after that, we looked at those seven days of gradual revelation. We kind of day, day, day. Remember that? And then on the eighth day, three days after, which would be Sunday, we had the great miracle at Cana, sort of a new creation. So we had seven days of this gradual revelation of who Jesus is. We then had a series that marked the replacement of Jewish institutions and festivals and things like that. So at Cana, stone water jars were done away with, right? So the Jewish, there's going to be a new type of purification that our Lord is going to bring. We also saw when our Lord went to Jerusalem, cleansed the temple, drove the animals out, that there's going to be a new temple. And that temple will be his flesh, his body. For that word became flesh. Then we also saw in the conversation with Nicodemus that birth in the chosen people was going to be replaced by a new birth, right? Of water and the spirit that John spoke about. So we saw that. Very significant. Then with the Samaritan woman, we saw that even worship in Jerusalem was going to be replaced. That people were worshiping the Father everywhere in spirit and in truth, not just in one location. Small c, Catholic. All right, he was going to establish a Catholic church, a universal church. And then we saw that second miracle at Cana where the royal official son was healed. So we saw also in all of this, these sort of reactions by individuals that represented certain groups of people. 
You had, you know, the temple authorities that sort of sent everybody, sent out the investigating team to sort of like, look, who is John the Baptist? You had Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee member of the Sanhedrin, a Jew among the Jews. Then you had the Samaritan woman who was half Jew, half Gentile. Then we saw the royal official. So we had this sort of movement from Judaism to more universal theme. Now we went on and we saw how some of the Old Testament feasts were being done away with. Uh, eventually Jesus will cure on the Sabbath. Because why? He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And they don't like that. But what we're going to see tonight, we're going to see how the Passover is going to be replaced with something new called the bread of life in John 6. The tabernacles, the great festival of tabernacles, will be replaced by a new source of living water, moving water. Remember the Samaritan woman? Remember living water, vibrant, dynamic, flowing water? And then even as far as the dedication of the temple, all these Jewish feasts eventually are going to be done away with, and they will be replaced. Done away with maybe more in the sense of fulfilled, brought to perfection. We got into chapter 5, so tonight we get to go into chapter 6, which is very important for all of us because this is the great chapter in John's Gospel where he talks about the bread of life. And this is a chapter that always causes in me great joy and great sadness because there are so many followers of Jesus who read this and don't get it and miss what he's saying and what he's saying in such a powerful way. It is a profound tragedy. Jesus prays at the end of John's gospel that all may be one. All we're doing tonight is the book of signs. We just have to try to get close to chapter 12. Maybe we will do another program later where we do 12 to the end. And we can do the passion and all that. But we just have to do the signs, these great signs. The Greek word semion, these powerful events that signify something, that reveal something about who Jesus is. Now, we know Jesus worked many, many miracles. But there are only seven mentioned in John's Gospel. There are seven signs. And every one of the miracles that he performs, it's a sign because it tells us something about who he is. Seven is always the number of biblical perfection, completion. Seven signs. That's why there are in John's Gospel also seven great I am statements. Seven times where John says, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the door, whatever the case might be. But there's seven. Very significant. That's why when you get to the book of Revelation and he writes that letter to the seven churches, remember that in the book of Revelation? It's the universal church. Those are the seven types of churches that you can find. Now, that having been said, we get to go into John 6 and take a look at what's going on here. So if you've got your Bibles, we'll start right there and we'll just start reading, going through it, and I'll make some comments as we proceed. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is that of Tiberias. And there followed him a great crowd because they witnessed the signs he worked on those who were sick. So was John aware that he worked more than just seven miracles? Yes, he's presupposing you know the synoptics, so there's no contradiction. There are multiple signs that are going on. And notice, frequently, the Jews don't dispute that he's working remarkable signs. The signs are so remarkable, the best thing they can come up with is he's doing it through the devil. All right? They're not denying the signs. Remember Nicodemus we talked about. We know 
that you come from God, because no one could do these signs unless God were with them. Remember that? Bearing all that we've already seen, let's go a little more deeply now. So great crowds are following him, large number of people. This is not a backwater rabbi. This is not a marginal Jew. This is a man who's come, whose light is shining forth in a world that is filled with darkness. And people are flocking to him, not only because of the cures, but remember who he's curing. Loved ones. Moms, dads bringing their kids. Kids bringing aged parents. And he sees them. He's moved with compassion. And he heals them. Now they're following him, and this is going to set the stage for one of his greatest signs in this gospel. Jesus, therefore, went up the mountain and sat with his disciples. Now, this is really significant for a host of reasons. He went up the mountain. Now, if you're a Jew and you say, he went up the mountain, who are you thinking of? Moses. And that's exactly what he wanted you to think about. This is Moses going up the mountain. And it's a position of authority. One thing we can forget oftentimes, the teaching position of authority at this time is not what I'm doing now. It's sitting. When you take your seat, that is your position of authority. You teach sitting down. If I did that, you'd all fall asleep. So I'm moving around. (laughs) Too much probably, but anyway. So he goes up and he sits. That's why every bishop has his cathedra. In every cathedral, it's a cathedra because it's got a cathedra. It's got the chair, the symbol of the authority. So going up the mountain, seat surrounded by his disciples, he's the new Moses. And that's what's being communicated here. And there's going to be a new covenant, foreshadowed anyway. So he goes up there. Let's continue on. Just in case anyone misses the point of this miracle, John's going to give you a little hint in verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. The Passover. So what are we thinking about? Unleavened bread, salvation, the lamb that was slain, all of those things. Sacrificial meal, salvation, all of those things that we associate with the Passover. And of course, one Passover after this, he's going to be in Jerusalem and he'll be celebrating his final Passover. And that's when he's going to say, one year from today, when this is happening, take and eat. This is. This is my body. Take and drink. This is my blood. And this is the profound tragedy. I don't mean this with any arrogance at all, but how can any Christian, hearing our Lord say, this is my body, say, no, it's not. And that's essentially what's being said. No, it's not. It's just a symbol. He doesn't say this is a symbol. He says, this is my body. This is my blood. And you don't have the words of institution in John's gospel because John emphasizes it right here. You have a Last Supper, but you don't get the words of institution because it's taught right here in chapter 6, one year before he actually institutes the great sacrament of his love, the gift of his heart, in which he gives himself to us. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. When therefore Jesus had lifted up his eyes and seen that a very great crowd had come to him, he said to Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? But he said this to try him, for he himself knew what he would do. Every time God asks a question, it's for whose benefit? Ours, not his. 
It wasn't that the fig leaves were really great in the Garden of Eden, right? Adam, where are you? <laughs> I can't see the fig leaves are too great. Yeah, I, it's for Adam because he wants to know, where are you? It's a great question. Where are you? You're not with me. Look at yourself. Look where you are. So the same thing, and John wants to make sure we get this. He knew what he was going to do. When shall we buy bread that these may eat? Because it's a large group. Now notice that he raises up his eyes. So where were his eyes before that? Closed. What was he probably doing if you're sitting down there with your eyes closed? He's praying. At every great event, every great moment in his life, and Luke mentions this all the time, he is in prayer. And this is a great moment. He is the supreme teacher. He knows that what he is about to do is an incredible act of charity for those who are present, but it's also a great foreshadowing. And that's why prayer is necessary here. So he's praying because this is going to be one of the great moments of his life and one of the great moments of our life. If we ever wake up and realize... What a gift we have in the Eucharist that we take for granted. I remember a friend I had in college wasn't Catholic, and he would go to Mass on campus all the time. He said, I can't believe what you guys say about the Eucharist. I said, why not? He says, because I go there. I've gone to your Mass. I watch the way people go up and the way they receive. If I really thought that that was the creator of the universe, that that was really Jesus Christ, I'd crawl up on my hands and knees. And I said, you're right. You're absolutely right. And we need to think about it because it's great to go, but we can become people of routine where we stop thinking about what's really going on here. That's why we need time of silence. We need time to prayer, time to prepare for these things. And who gives us the great example? Our Lord himself, lifting up his eyes, seeing that vast crowd. Now, we know from the synoptics, I think, I don't know if it says here, I'd have to go back and look, but there were 5,000 men. Scripture scholars tell us that if there were 5,000 men, not counting women and children, this is probably, he's probably got, for this miracle, one-tenth of the population of Palestine is there. This is a huge, huge event. Now, Philip, of course, is going to have a role to play also at the Last Supper, right? Philip, have I been with you all this time and still you do not know? So there's all these parallels, but we can't jump to, the, to that part yet. Anyway, but you should be thinking Last Supper as we go through this. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread is not enough for them that each one may receive a little. In other words, it's impossible. We don't have the money. We can't feed them. One of his disciples, Andrew, the very first guy, We don't want to forget him. The brother of Simon Peter. Poor Andrew, that's how he's always known. (laughs) The brothers, can I ever get out from my brother's shadow? But I don't think it was a problem for him. The brother of Simon Peter said, there is a young boy here who has five barley loaves and two fishes, but what are these among so many? That's the human way to think. Well, we got five loaves and a couple of fish. And how many times do we not do what we're supposed to do because we're thinking as men think, not as God thinks? doesn't matter how little you have. Whatever you have, give it to him and let him make the miracle happen. Oh, I'm not educated. I can't talk about Jesus. Or I don't know the scripture that well. I can't share that with people in my family or people in the workplace. That's nonsense. Say a prayer to the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, don't be afraid at that moment. The Holy Spirit will work through you. We've got to take him at his word and have confidence. It's not you anyway that's doing it. He's doing it. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. 
So we go back here. Jesus said, make the people recline. Now, there was much grass in the place. Now, why is there a lot of grass? What time of year is it? Spring, because it's near the Passover. You see, these, it's all so beautiful. You look at this, you see, it all makes perfectly good sense. You've got an eyewitness to someone who saw a historic event, something that really happened. These things are not made up. They're not invented. The men, therefore, reclined in the number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, distributed them to those reclining, and likewise the fishes, as much as they wished. Now the word, he gave thanks. Guess what the word is? Eucharisteo. Eucharisteo. Sound familiar? He gave thanks, which is very important symbolically and makes us all think about what's going to come. He gave thanks and distributed them. He gives thanks them out. He distributes. Now we know from the synoptics that what he did, he blessed, broke, gave to the disciples, right? And the disciples are the ones who sent it out. But he really, John is really focusing on the king here. He's focusing on the savior. The blessed, break, and give. That's what Jesus does at the Last Supper. And he wants you to be thinking of the Last Supper to understand what's going on here. But when they were filled... He said to his disciples, gather the fragments that are left over, lest they be wasted. They therefore gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now notice, they don't gather the fish. What do they gather? The barley loaves, because that's important. Gather up the fragments, and the Greek word for fragment is klasma, which is the word in the early church in our liturgies for host. All right? Gather up the klasma, gather up the fragments, lest they be wasted. And nothing in here is accidental, so they gather up in how many baskets? Twelve. One ciborium for every apostle. Twelve baskets. One ciborium for every apostle has a basket filled, filled. Just like those stone water jars, right? Filled. All eat and are filled. All eat and are satisfied. And then there are 12 baskets, one for each apostle. This is totally ecclesial. And so much is being taught about the church and the feeding that's going to happen in the future. When the people, therefore, had seen the sign which Jesus had worked, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So when Jesus perceived that they would come and take him by force and make him king, he fled again to the mountain himself alone. Moses was supposed to perform the manna miracle. The new Moses was supposed to do that. They see the sign, they say, this is the Messiah. But of course, they interpret it politically and they come and they want to make him king. King of this world. That's not what he's here for. It's a misunderstanding. And so he flees and he goes up on the mountain alone to pray. Remember, that was one of the temptations in the synoptics, wasn't it? All these kingdoms are mine, all right? That's what you need to be. Be a real king. Be a king in this world. And that's the temptation. He goes off again to the mountain to pray alone. Now we continue. Does this make sense to everybody? Okay. Now when evening had come, his disciples went down to the sea. And getting into a boat, they went across the sea towards Capernaum. Here would be so much fun to take Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and compare their accounts. Because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it says that Jesus told the disciples to get in the boat and go away. He alone stayed and dismissed the crowd. Isn't that beautiful? 
because they've all had the bread. So the disciples now need to get out of the way, and he alone stays and dismisses the crowd. You see what's kind of going on there a little bit? And it was already dark, but Jesus had not come to them. Now the sea was rising because a strong wind was blowing. But after they had rose some 25 or 30 stadia, they beheld Jesus walking upon the sea. Now that's about three miles. Now this is an amazing thing. Sea of Galilee is about six miles wide, 14 miles long. It's a big body of water. When the wind comes out of the north, there can be enormous storms on that lake. It's a very impressive body of water. So Jesus comes walking towards them upon the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, which can also be translated, I am. Do not be afraid. All right? Do not be afraid. They desired, therefore, to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land toward which they were going. So no matter what the storm, you think you're alone, someone's watching. And when's necessary, that person will come. Now, it's also interesting. Oh, I hate to do this because I get in trouble because it's, it's kind of strange. But in Mark, when he gets in the boat, the apostles are utterly astounded. And then Mark adds something really funny. He says, because they did not understand about the loaves. Isn't that weird? They did not understand about the loaves. Now, oh, I wish we could do more of that. But just think about this for a little bit. The miracle that he has just performed with the loaves and fishes, what did he do? What was the miracle that he performed? Multiplication of matter, all right? He showed great power over matter. When he comes walking on the water, what is he showing power over? He's showing power over his body. Showing power over his body. And they see him walking on the water, and what do they say? It's a ghost. It's not his flesh and blood. He's not really there. But is he really there? Body, blood, soul, divinity. The apostles had seen the multiplication of the loaves, but they didn't understand the sign, the deeper meaning. It was a foreshadowing of what was to come. And you can't fault them. But you understand the situation. So he sets this whole thing up where he shows power over matter, and now he shows power over his own body. You see what I'm saying there? But he really is there. He really is there. And so this now becomes the opportunity for him to begin to teach and communicate in such a beautiful way what he really wants to share with them. And that's the fact that he himself is the bread of life. All right. So, the next day, the crowd which had remained on the other side of the sea observed that there had been but one boat at the place and Jesus wasn't there. So eventually they go and they say, okay, we got to catch up. We want to get back with him. And you kind of understand why. If you really want to make this guy king, you want to be with him because you believe in him and who he is. Okay, so let's go up to 25, verse 25. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, whence did thou come here? Of course, she didn't say, I walked here. No, he doesn't say that. All right. <laughs> it's kind of cool. It reminds me of a golf joke, but I won't use it. <laughs> Jesus answered them and said, Amen, amen, I say to you, you seek me, not because you have seen signs, but because you have eaten your fill of the loaves and have been filled. 
In other words, it's the earthly thing that they're concerned about. He gave us bread. We're filled. That's the kind of king we want. We want a bread king. And there's a lot of people that want a bread king. But that's not why he comes. Remember the temptation? Not by bread alone does man live, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. And what we're getting right here is what? Words coming forth from the mouth of God. And that's what gives life. Okay, so he goes on after that. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for that which endures unto life everlasting, which the Son of Man will give you, for upon him the Father, God himself, has set his seal. They therefore said to him, What are we to do that we may perform the works of God? In answer, Jesus said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And that's what they're not doing. They want to go, What's the works of God? What are the commandments? What are the law? And he says, that's not it anymore. The works of God are to believe in him who is sent. The seal of the Father is upon him. They said, therefore, to him, what sign then dost thou that we may see and believe thee? What work dost thou perform? And then they go back again to the Old Testament. They keep going back instead of going forward or looking at what's right in front of them. Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, even as written, bread from heaven he gave them to eat. And then Jesus now has to correct, even they don't get the Old Testament properly. Jesus said to him, Amen, amen, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said therefore to him, Lord, give us always this bread. Now this sets the stage for his great teaching. Now, in the rest of this chapter, most theologians and exegetes divide this chapter into two basic parts. Verse 35 to 50 deals with the discourse on the bread of life. Bread of life understood as the wisdom of his teaching. Bread was always wisdom, something you eat, something you take into yourself. So from 35 to 50, that's the bread of life as sapiential wisdom, as teaching that Jesus gives. When you go from 51 to 59, when he starts talking about the bread being given up, offered sacrificially, that's when you start going sacramental. Does that make sense? That's why at every Mass, there are two tables, we are told, right? There's the table of the Word, with which we are fed, and there's the table of the sacrament, by which we're fed, his flesh and blood. So the same thing here. So as he goes right on at the beginning of 35, what he's talking about here is, I'm not here doing my will. I come to do the will of the Father. It's always his obediential love. Even though he's son, it's not about him. It's about doing the Father's will. And it's so beautiful. So he communicates that. Now they begin to get upset as he goes on teaching this. Take a look at 41. The Jews therefore murmured about him because he said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. And they kept saying, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How then does he say, I have come down from heaven? Sounds like the synoptics, right? And John knows that you've read the synoptics, so he's adding more detail. In answer, therefore, Jesus said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draw him. 
and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, if you're going to understand the teaching, if you're going to come to faith in Jesus, what is absolutely necessary? The Father has to give you the grace. We don't make converts. We don't cause converts. God does that. The Holy Spirit does that. The best we can do is be instruments to remove obstacles. All right? Hopefully we're not an obstacle, right? But that's the best thing we can do. But it's the Father who does it. So there has to be an openness to the Spirit, but the Father is the one who does this. So he goes on. It is written by the prophets, and Jesus quotes, and they all shall be taught of God. So he reminds him of the witness of the prophets. Everyone who has listened to the Father and has learned comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except him who is from God. He has seen the Father. Remember the prologue. No one has at any time seen God, the eternal Son. He is in the bosom of the Father. Remember that from the prologue? So again, summary of the gospel. That's what he's teaching here. Amen, I say to you, he who believes in me has life everlasting. So again, he's offering the bread of his wisdom. And if you believe in him, you have life everlasting. Now he starts going on and starts shifting from just teaching to sacramental. Starting here, uh, let's take a look, 48, he starts making the transition. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the desert and have died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that if anyone eat of it, he will not die. I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. If anyone eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give, his giving in the sense of give up, offer up, in other words, die, he says, is my flesh for the life of the world. So his death, his sacrificial death, his flesh is what's going to give life. And we can't miss the paradox of that. I will die, my flesh will die, but when it's raised up again, that becomes the eternal living bread that will give everyone who participates in that divine life the same life. When you were baptized, the same life that was in Christ Jesus entered into you. That's why the greatest evil in the world is mortal sin. It's mortal because it kills that divine life. If you're in a state of grace right now, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living within you. All the mystics tell us this. The greatest saints tell us this. Even little Elizabeth of the Trinity at age three was completely fully aware of the divine indwelling, Father, Son, and Spirit in her soul at age three. She's a Carmelite nun. Elizabeth of the Trinity, wonderful saint. Read about her. Back to this. So he goes on. The Jews, on account, argued with one another, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And you have to understand, this is really difficult. You've got this guy standing right in front of him saying, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're looking at this, how are you going to do that? Why would we do that? Now, the pagans understood sacrificial meal. They understood eating the Passover lamb and incorporation into Israel. They understood sacrificial meal, but not in this way. Jesus therefore said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life in you. Now notice, he does not say, I only mean it figuratively, guys. He comes right back and says, unless you eat, and the word he uses for eat in the Greek is not just eat dinner, it means actually unless you chew, you munch, you gnarl, unless you really eat this, 
You're not going to have life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has life everlasting, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also shall live because of me. This is the bread that has come down from heaven. Not like manna. So again, another Jewish tradition, the manna, great as it was, that fed the people, kept them alive, that did not give them eternal life. So this new sacrifice is going to be transforming. And it will give the greatest gift we could ever ask for, eternal life. Not just a future life, but eternal life. Life with God. A life of friendship. Because we have the divine life in us. You know, in order to have a friend, you have to, there has to be a certain common, you're on the same level in order to have real friendship, right? That's impossible with God unless he lives in us. But when he really lives in us, the life of grace, then real friendship becomes possible. And eternal life becomes possible. Now we're then told, John, who is the eyewitness, adds in 60, these things he said when teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. And we've now uncovered Capernaum, and we've actually uncovered that synagogue. And you can stand in the remains of that synagogue and read John 6, where he first announced the Eucharist. Amazing. Now, the reaction. And this is where it gets difficult. Many of his disciples, therefore, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were murmuring at this. Now notice, this is not just the Jews. These are his disciples, not the twelve, but the disciples who have been following him, going off on mission and everything. They've never heard this before. Now, of course, this is a sacrifice. He's talking about dying, giving his flesh in death. That's not good. That's not happy. That's not fun. That's not, let's go into Jerusalem and kick everybody out of the temple again. All right? That's dying. So it's different. Now, notice what he says. Does this scandalize you that my flesh, when I give it up, will become life-giving? Does this scandalize you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? Where was he before? In heaven. In other words, I'm not just a man standing in front of you. I am the Son of Man. He's pointing out, He's God incarnate. What if you saw the Son of Man, the Son who is enfleshed here and dwelling among you, ascend to where He was before? In the bosom of the Father. Talk about scandal. A human body in the bosom of the Father? I'm sorry, to be Catholics, weird. You've you got to accept this. It's almost like it's too good, it's too incredible. God loves us so much that he actually descended, becomes a man, so that he can bring all of us when he ascends back with him to the divine level. That's why we really and truly become divinized. We become divinized. That's what the life of grace is all about. So he goes on. It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. If you're just thinking, yes, in terms of human flesh, it can't happen. But with the Spirit, united to the Spirit of God, all things are possible. Even a rich guy getting to heaven (laughs) through the eye of a needle. All things are possible. But stop thinking in a purely fleshly way. It is through the Spirit. 
The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Because the words give life. And it is through spirit that we are in leaven. That's why at the beginning of every Mass, before we get to the consecration, the priest puts his hands over the gifts and says, Send forth thy spirit. It is through the spirit. I love that new thing. Like the dewfall. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. Get up in the morning every time I look at the grass, I think of the Mass now. It's great. Descend like the morning dew, like the dewfall. So he goes on. But there are some among you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that should betray him. Now, isn't it interesting that the first reference we have to the fall of Judas is in chapter 6 of John's Gospel, the day Jesus announces the Eucharist. He gives us an insight into Judas, doesn't it? Why all this waste? This could have been sold and given to the poor. He does not want a Messiah who suffers and dies. He does not want a Eucharist. That's why when does the final betrayal take place? It's at the Last Supper. John says, yeah, he's there. What you do, do quickly. And he went out. And then John adds, now it was night. You leave Jesus, that's where you are in the night. Welcome to the modern world. We have, we have to be honest, we have left him. We have left his church, we have left his teaching. There is encroaching darkness everywhere. And finally, maybe we just have to go so low that we finally wake up and see There is no other answer. There is no other meaning in life apart from him. There is nothing. He is spirit. He is life. So he goes on. He said, this is why I have said to you, no one can come to me unless he is enabled to do so by my father. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. The Eucharist, the great sacrament of unity. And what does it cause? division. All right, he loses the crowds. The crowds turn and walk away. They like the miracles, but this is too much. Even his own disciples that he has been training, this saying is hard. Who can listen to it? They turn and walk away. And then I think this, to me, is probably the saddest verse in all of Scripture. Jesus therefore said to the twelve, to the twelve, do you also wish to go away? Can you imagine You've come to die that you can give them life. And you're teaching them now that through this death, you will be with them in such a special, intimate way that God is not just an external, outside truth. He is now deeply inside every one of us. And he will be that way. And that will allow us to be raised up on the last day to live with God, to behold the beatific vision, to see infinite beauty, infinite goodness, infinite truth and rejoice with those we love, and they don't walk with him anymore. All he's got left are the 12, and he says, do you want to go away too? Can you talk about a broken heart? A broken heart. And it's the Eucharist, and that's where the great divide remains. The great gift of his love, the great gift of his heart, the Eucharist. But fortunately for us, Simon Rock... Simon Rock, Simon Peter therefore answered. He didn't say, hey, let's form a committee, guys, and discuss this. (laughs) A group of the unfit selected to do the unnecessary. Everything's by committee. You know, committees are fine. I'm a collaborative guy. But, But without taking anything, 
He steps forward. He steps forward. Why? Because he's the rock. He's the prince of the apostles. He's the head of the twelve. That's why John wants you to know, this is Simon Peter. Remember, Peter's name is a common noun. It means rock. There's nowhere found anywhere in Greek or in Aramaic where kephos or petros is a name. It's just a common noun. But it becomes associated with him like a nickname as a quality that inheres and eventually becomes a personal name. Just like there's no personal name Stonewall. Right? But after first Manassas, their sons Jackson, like a stone wall, rally behind the Virginians, and then suddenly, what was his first name anyway? All right. It just goes Stonewall. All right. Same thing. Simon Peter eventually just becomes Peter. Here's the rock. Simon Peter therefore answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of everlasting life, and we have come to believe and to know. Notice the words. We have come to believe, we have faith, but the faith is also part of our reason. We have come to believe and to know that thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Don't you love Peter? There's the rock when you have turned. Strengthen your brethren. That's where our Lord gets it, because that's what he's doing right here. He's the spokesman. So he goes on. Jesus answered them, Have I not chosen you the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. Now we're speaking of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he, though one of the twelve, who would betray him. This is one of the things I love about the gospel. Notice how nothing is hidden, nothing is sort of swept under the carpet. Yeah, there was a betrayer, one of the twelve. And one of the twelve is going to stay in the apostolic college and look just totally fine, as if he's cool with everything, for a whole year. Because we're a year away from this, all right? And we're already told there's already a devil in him. We get little insights when he starts saying, like, why all this waste? (laughs) Should have given it to the poor. He didn't care about the poor. John, John, the great apostle of charity, says he was a thief. He took money out of the purse. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, let's go on to chapter 7. Chapter 7 takes us to some interesting things. When you go from chapter 7 to chapter 12, verse 50, you now get into conflict. As soon as our Lord announces the Eucharist, his great gift, the devil kicks in over time. And it becomes conflict and tension, especially when our Lord is in Jerusalem. They're constantly attacking, and there's polemic and argument, and it goes on and on. Now, after these things, Jesus went about in Galilee, for he did not wish to go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to put him to death. And we know why. He kept breaking the Sabbath, and he kept calling God his Father, making himself equal to God. I mean, the Jews understood better than Arius did, the heretic. Now, his brethren, we get to a point they say, oh, go up for the feast. We want you to go up to the feast. And the feast that they want him to go up is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, Feast of Tabernacles was one of the most joyous feasts in the Jewish year. What we think of as like Thanksgiving, that's what the Feast of Tabernacles was to them. It recalls before they had their own promised land where they were sojourning in the desert. And so they would all gather up around Jerusalem. Josephus says it was their happiest feast day the Feast of Tabernacles, and they would build these tents, and they would recall when they used to live in the desert, but they didn't live in the desert, they had their own land, so it was a great celebration of thanksgiving, and everyone would go to the temple. 
And one of the great things they would do is they would recall the mosaic miracle of the water from the rock. So every day the high priest with procession and palms would go down to the pool of Siloam and he would drop a big urn of water and he would take it up to the temple and then they would pour the water out on the altar of the temple, recalling the water flowing from the rock. Does that make sense to everybody? So it's their thanksgiving. This is what it was for the Jews. Now he says, I'm not going to go up because he's not going to go up publicly. This is not the time for the great Palm Sunday entrance. So his relatives, his brethren go up, and then he goes up secretly. Now go to 11, and you start to see already the division and the debate that's going on among the Jews. The Jews, therefore, were looking for him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much whispered comment among the crowd concerning him. For some were saying, he's a good man. But others are saying, no, rather, he seduces the crowd. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. So is it serious going up there? You can't even talk about it because they want to kill him. And they know that. When, however, the feast was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Not publicly. Suddenly, the Lord shall appear in his temple. Isaiah. He shows up in the temple. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man come by learning since he is not studied? Every Jewish rabbi would say, Rabbi so-and-so said. Rabbi so-and-so said. My beloved rabbi said. This guy doesn't... He's not like that at all. Where does he get all this? He never studied. He never had formal education. And yet he speaks so incredibly. Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. If anyone desires to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. So again, who is his rabbi? (laughs) The Father, God. This man is different. There has never been anything like this. Even when he's doing the miracles, they say, Never have we seen the like. This is a totally unique experience. So he then goes on. Look at 25. Some therefore the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is not this the man they seek to kill? And behold, he speaks openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the rulers have really come to know that this is the Christ? Then he adds, Yet we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Now John doesn't answer that because he knows you've already read or heard the synoptics. Because they don't really know where he's from. They don't know where he's from. Jesus, therefore, while teaching the temple, cried out and said, You both know me and know where I am from, yet I have not come of myself. But he is true who has sent me, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he has sent me. Remember the prologue? It's all the procession from the Father. They wanted, therefore, to seize him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. What's his hour? The passion. And this is so important. They can never take him until he lets them. I can't go to the garden. But remember when they come in John's Gospel, the garden, they says, who do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth says, I am he. And what do they do? They fall back to the ground. And then it's only when he says, I'm in your power, then they can do it. He lays down his life. He takes it up again. No one's taking it from him. Because just as the Father has life in him, so the Son also has life in himself, as he's going to say. 
Let's see what else he has to say. They wanted to seize him. Many of the people, however, believed in him. They kept saying, when the Christ comes, will he work more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering these things about him, and the rulers and the Pharisees sent attendants to seize him. They sent the temple guard to seize him. (laughs) You remember what happens to the temple guard, though? They come back to the rulers and say, why didn't you take him? And you know what they say? Because no man has ever spoken like this man. They went out to arrest him and got arrested by his words. When the enemy gives you this kind of praise, it tells you something about the kind of man he is. No wonder the woman in the crowd said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. Can't you see a woman say, How great to have a son like that. I mean, there was such beauty, such nobility. What an incredible man. And I'm not saying the shroud is true, but if you look at that image on the shroud and you imagine for one moment those eyes opening up, wow, what a face. What a man. Jesus said, yet a little while I am with you and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews therefore said among themselves, where is he going that we shall not find him? Will he go to those dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? They said that mockingly, but guess what? When he goes, that's exactly what he's going to do. And that's exactly right. He is going to go among the Gentiles and bring them into the great mystery. No more longer the distinction between Jew and Gentile. Everyone is welcome in the Father's home. What is this statement that he has made? You will seek me, will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Then we're told in verse 37, Now on the last, the great day of the feast... The last great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, you had the normal procession, but the priest would go down with an enormous urn, fill it with water, and then the last great day of the Feast, he would come and would walk around the altar, not once but seven times, just like at Jericho, and then he would pour this enormous amount of water. The water would just be gushing from the altar. So this is the day of the last great day of that feast. That's what's going on. They're going down the pool of Siloam, which means sent in Hebrew. But of course, who's the one who's really sent? Jesus. Who's the real water? Jesus. So again, another ritual is being replaced here. Now on the last, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In other words, where aren't you going? Not to the pool of Siloam, not to the altar dripping with water. Come to me if you're thirsty. Come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from within him there shall flow rivers of living water. He said this, however, of the Spirit, whom they who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So the living waters of the Spirit, that's baptism. Now, of course, the whole question is, when was he glorified? I'll give you a hint. If you have your Bible and can look very quickly at chapter 13, verse 31, hopefully there's a Protestant here and they'll get it real quick. Just kidding. They are so fast. They put power hitting. Have you got it? Can you read it? When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and in him God is glorified. At once. Okay, that's right after Judas goes out. All right? So when is he glorified? When I am lifted up, 
I will draw all men to myself. Remember the three steps? On the cross, he's lifted up. He draws everyone. He's lifted up again at the resurrection. And finally, the ascension into heaven. So it's the cross is his moment of glory. That is his glorification when he is lifted up. Because that's when the Spirit happens. And that's why John is the only one who mentions, we can't get to it because it's beyond the book of signs, but it's foreshadowing, living water. From his heart shall flow rivers of living water. He's on the cross. His side is opened. His heart is pierced. And what comes out? Living water. Living water. Yeah, Pentecost is the birthday of the church. That's when the church is visibly manifest. But the church is conceived... The church is conceived on Calvary. It is accomplished. It is finished. He dies. And then the age of the Spirit begins when the side is not wounded, but opened, opened, and blood and water gush out. And notice what John says. He who has seen it has borne witness, and his witness is true. And he knows that he tells the truth. He talks more about that than he does the resurrection. It's very significant. It's the age of the Spirit. It's the fulfillment of the promise. It's the living waters flowing out of his heart. Beautiful, beautiful thing. On the Feast of Booze. Now, the crowds hear this, and what do they say? Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is in 41, this is the Christ. Some, however, said, can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that it is the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David lived, that the Christ is to come? Now, John doesn't answer that because he knows. You already know the answer because you've been catechized and you've read the synoptics. Did he come from Bethlehem? Yeah. All right. So John doesn't have to deal with that. Perfect compatibility between John and the synoptics. They complement each other so beautifully. All right, let's go on then, if we could, to chapter 8. After Nicodemus gives a defense. There's so many wonderful things in here. But then again, in chapter 8, we have the beautiful story of the woman caught in adultery. And again, as I said before, every woman that encounters Jesus, Jesus has nothing but love for them. Nothing but love for them. Now the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and setting her in the midst said to him, Master, this woman has just now been caught in adultery. And in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such persons. What therefore dost thou say? This is just like the coin of tribute. These guys are creeps. This woman was just caught in the act of adultery. What does that tell you? This was set up. And the jerky man, whoever was involved in the setup, he's off scot-free. And of course, Jesus sees immediately what's going on. They could care less about this woman. They could care less about the law. This woman is just an object. They used her as an object. Now they're using her again as an object. Nothing worse to human dignity to any person than to treat somebody as if they're nothing but an object. Jesus sees that that's exactly what they're doing. And they're using her as an object to try to get to him. Because why? It's a perfect fix. If he says, don't stone her, you're violating the law of Moses. Huh, you're not a real rabbi. You're not a prophet. And if he says, stone her, that violates Roman law. The Jews were not allowed to exercise capital punishment. And that was really enforced strongly in Jerusalem. So we got him. We got him. Hmm. Yeah, they got him all right. They didn't get anything. Now they were saying this to test him in order they might be able to accuse him. But Jesus, stooping down, began to write with his finger on the ground. 
Very interesting thing, writing with his finger on the ground. Graphain is the normal word that you use for writing. This is katagraphain, which normally means that you're writing against someone. Now, we don't know what he's writing in the ground, but a lot of people, because of that word, think maybe he was writing out certain sins in the ground. How interesting. But they continue asking him. He raised himself and said, you see them, what do we do? What do we do? Not letting him get away. He's writing on the ground. And they're just almost like, I don't care what you're doing. Writing on the ground. And they keep pestering him. And then finally, he raises himself and said, let him who was out sin among you be the first to cast a stone at her. Gosh, what an answer. What an incredible answer. And again, stooping down, he began to write on the ground. But hearing this, they went away one by one, beginning with the eldest. And Jesus remained alone with the woman standing in the midst. Augustine comments, Misera et misericordia. The wretched one and the merciful one are left together. And so beautifully, so beautifully, Jesus raising himself said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned thee? She said, No one, Lord. Then Jesus said, Neither will I condemn thee. Go thy way, and from now on, sin no more. Shouldn't have been, don't do this. But there's no condemnation. There is just love and mercy. And she's given back her dignity. And that's what he does. That's what he does to every single human being. He gives us back our dignity. We were purchased at a great price, you know. And we take it so much for granted. He died for us. He gave his flesh, his last ounce of blood. He gave for us. That's our dignity. We're sons and daughters of God. We have an eternal value. Like someone once said, you have never met a mere mortal. Every person you've met in your life has an eternal destiny. That's why abortion's wrong. That's why euthanasia is wrong. That's why acts of uncharity, gossip, and things like that, that's why it's wrong. It's a violation of human dignity. So he then goes on right after this. Now, there was another thing that was also going on here. Uh, when you had this great festival of the tabernacles in the courtyard of the women, they lit these enormous torches, four enormous torches that burned day and night. And they would have made this enormous glow in the temple area. So that's going on too. And notice that right after this, what does he say in 12? Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Just as he says, I'm the living water. Don't go there. Now you've got the courtyard of the torches flaming. Right in, and he looks up and he says, I am the light of the world. See, you can't compromise on him. He's either crazy, an egomaniac of astounding proportions, or he's what he said he is and what he proved by what he did. So he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me does not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And what life is that? Supernatural life, divine life, living in our souls. He who follows me does not walk in darkness, but has the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, Thou bear witness to thyself, thy witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness to myself, my witness is true, because I know where I came from and where I go. And so he goes on, and then it gets very hot and very heavy and very argumentative. He says, you are from below. 
I am from above, contrasting himself with the Jews. Your teaching is from below. My teaching is from above. This is in 22. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And this is important for us to remember in John's Gospel. Very important point because it caused a lot of confusion after the Second Vatican Council to understand when we use the word world, what we mean by that. Because it caused all sorts of confusion. In John's Gospel, there are three ways in which the world is used. There is the world of visible creation, which is good, right? God creates everything. And on the seventh day he rests, he looks at all he made, he says, it is very good. Visible creation is good. There's also the world as the society of men, human beings, men and women. God so loved the world that he sent his own son. In other words, he loved humanity, you and me, individually. But there's another way in which the world is used in Scripture, which is the spiritus mundi, the spirit of the world. And Jesus says, I don't pray for that. If the world has hated you, it hated me also. That is the spirit of worldliness that is under the evil one. Does that make sense? So when you're talking about the world, make sure you know which world you're talking about. Is it creation? Is it the society of human beings? Or is it the spiritus mundi? One of the great enemies we have in the spiritual life. And everyone said, oh, we've got to be one with the world, got to get out in the world. Well, if you mean get out with people, yes. But if you mean embrace worldliness... Embrace the spirit of the world? No. And that's where we got in a lot of confusion. Got into a lot of confusion. So he gives this incredible teaching about being the light of the world. And then he goes on again. Look at 28. Jesus therefore said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that of myself I do nothing but that I preach only what the Father has taught me. He goes on and then finally ends up with a great culmination saying, the Father and I are one. The great revelation. The unity between him and his Father. Now that gets us up at least to chapter 9, which is probably a little further than I thought we were going to get. And then also, you remember, then you have the raising of Lazarus, and then you go into Jerusalem. The raising of Lazarus is his last and greatest miracle. But unfortunately, it hardens many hearts. Many are brought to Jesus. Many believe in him. But then remember that the leaders of the Jews, they not only want to kill Jesus, they also want to kill Lazarus. They try, it says it very but they want to kill Lazarus as well because so many are going over. So, this is really the book of signs. The great signs that Jesus did, everything he did, curing the blind man as the light of the world, being the source of the living water, being the bread of life, all of these signs, everything that we're taught in this first part of the book from chapter 1 to 12, tell us something very important about Jesus. And the fundamental thing is that we're really taught is that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Lowe. Thank you very okay. much, Dr. O'Donnell, for a wonderful presentation. This is just a single detail, but Jesus said, when he was referring to Judas, he says, he is a devil, not he has a devil. And I just wondered what the thought behind that was. Yeah. That's a, that's a very good question. I don't think it means necessarily he was possessed, but in the sense that he was acting like a devil. A devil is a hostile spirit who opposes God and his mission. 
So even though he's one of the twelve, Judas is opposing Christ and his mission. The essence of the demonic temptation, if you go back to Matthew and Luke, is the rejection of the cross. Like, command the stones to be bread, or jump off the temple and have the angels lift you up, do something spectacular, or, you know, bow down and worship me. Anything but the cross. That's why the first time Jesus predicts the passion, right after Peter's profession of faith in Matthew's gospel, Peter comes up to him and says, come on, Lord, you don't have to do this. And then he turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. I lead you, you don't lead me, Satan. The devil hates the cross. He falls through pride. The crucifixion is the ultimate act of humility. So what he's saying about Judas is Judas is not with the program. So the day he announces the Eucharist, the day he's announcing his sacrificial death, he knows that he's not going to go along with that. And that's why he turns against him, wants to look for an opportunity to betray him, and finally will betray him. And the final repudiation is at the Last Supper where Jesus confects the sacrament, institutes the great sacrament of the Eucharist, and he leaves and rejects that and goes over to the high priest to betray him. So he, is, he defines himself in opposition to Christ and his mission, like a demon. Okay. You mentioned that uh, the, the last miracle, the raising of Lazarus, was the greatest of the miracles. Can you talk a little bit about that? The greatest of the miracles. All the miracles are great, but I mean, obviously, the, the thing about Lazarus, he comes that we might have life and have it to the full. He knows that Lazarus is going to die. And there's all that dialogue beforehand. Oh, well, if he's sleeping, he's okay. Do you remember that? And then he says, no, he's dead, and you've got to know that. The great enemy is death. We die. And that's the fruit of original sin. And we have to die because of that. So when Jesus comes and encounters the reality of death, he's not stoic about it. You know, remember the, Martha comes out to greet him and then Mary comes out, the Lord is here and says, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And then Jesus groans, he sighs deeply in spirit. It finally says he breaks down and weeps, and the idea is uncontrollable sobbing and weeping. So Jesus, there's nothing wrong with grieving when someone we love dies. We just don't grieve like those who have no hope. We have hope. And one of the reasons we have hope is because of what he did with Lazarus. Lazarus has already been dead for three days. I think the King James Version said, he stinketh. You know, Lord, <laughs> you know, I mean, we say, Lord, there'll be a stench or something. But he's already been dead. And if you go to the Holy Land, it's fascinating because they have where Lazarus' tomb is. And you have to go way down under the earth. So I think to have someone who's been dead for three days, and this is really close to Jerusalem, is just before his own passion, and he uses that miracle to teach something about himself. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even shall he die, yet shall he live. That's the ultimate promise, eternal life. That's what baptism is. That's what the bread of life is for. So I think this miracle that actually takes him raises him up when he was dead and brings him back to life and restores him to his loved ones. And then you have all these Jews coming out from Jerusalem, not just to see Jesus, but to see Lazarus. I mean, it is the culmination of his mission, and it is a powerful sign that he is the Messiah. That's why I think it's the greatest, because it's the gift of life. Yes, do you think it's fair to say that God contains within himself the eternal reason for things? The word, the eternal logos, is divine reason. So, yes, absolutely. That's why there is order, and that's why we're making a big mistake when we're examining the world through science and other things to say that this order is not a sign of intelligence. It's a very irrational position to take. Dr. O'Donnell, after Jesus walks on water and the 
disciples say they had not understood the incident of the loaves and in Mark it says on the contrary their hearts were hardened mm -hmm. why were their hearts hardened ah that's a tough question their hearts were hardened it may be that the apostles like the crowd were looking at the material of the sign the multiplication of the loaves and were staying at that level which was the level of bread king temporal messiah earthly glory earthly kingdom to have the heart hardened means they weren't open to the deeper message and i don't think the scriptures necessarily faulting them because i don't think unless god had given them a special grace they could have fully understood that but i think the sense that their hearts were hardened that they weren't making the connection between the miracle over matter now the miracle over his body we all have hardened hearts and so we have to get rid of the stony hearts and have hearts of flesh but the hardness comes from a lack of understanding it's not like they said i'm closing my heart to jesus no the hardness of heart in other words it's not getting in it's not penetrating but it's because of the fact that they didn't understand the loaves and fishes they saw the miracle, but the deeper meaning, oh, it's Passover and all the other things that were involved in that, they didn't perceive it at that time. The apostles have to make a journey of faith, too. Yeah, Professor, what can everyday laymen, everyday people do to make the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist, the true real presence, more clear to our fellow laymen? A uh, number of things you can do. The best thing you can do is go to daily Mass. <laughs> that really, I think, is the best thing. Or if you could sign up for Eucharistic Adoration, even if just one hour a week, make the commitment. There are a lot of chapels that have perpetual adoration. But I think those become great opportunities because so many times, oh, can you do this? Oh, I've got adoration tonight. What's that? And he says, oh, Christ is truly present in our church, body, blood, soul, and divinity, and I get to spend an hour with him. And I'm going to go do that. I think those are great ways that you can do it. Other than just being open, if someone should ask you a question about the fact that you're Catholic, and hopefully there's enough in your life that you're different, and that they can sense that there's something different about you. And if they ask, well, why are you Catholic? I think one of the fundamental reasons is because of the Eucharist. Every Sunday I receive our Lord in Holy Communion, or even more so if possible. Okay? It's a great question. Yes, in this part where he talks about unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Now, does that allude by any chance to our brothers and sisters in other Christian denominations that do not have the Eucharist? Does that mean they don't have life within them? Is that how we can interpret that? No, because, I, well, yes, how can I say? Yes and no. I hate answers like that. Um, <laughs> but in the sense, since they have baptism, they have the sacrament of baptism, they have divine life. The Eucharist is the great, it is the bread for the journey. It gives you the strength to continue on the journey. So the idea that if you're going to preserve the life of grace in your soul, the life that is given to you through the sacrament of baptism, in order to sustain that, you have to eat the bread of life. That's one of the reasons also I believe in the Eastern tradition, I think Deacon Sabatini tell me, when they baptize the child, they also give the child first Holy Communion. You have Eucharist also at baptism, and that's one of the reasons why. So the idea is that you cannot sustain or cannot have life without that and this is a profound tragedy because our, our protestant brothers and sisters love the scripture they read this all the time and yet they're missing this 
And we have 2,000 years of Christian tradition saying that this is his body and blood. I think the first teaching that ever challenged it was a theologian named Berengarius, like in the 11th century, and he totally repented of his error. But I mean, even right up to the time of the Protestant revolt, you had unanimous teaching about no one would have ever thought that you would have challenged our Lord in this most precious gift of the Eucharist. Thank you very much, Dr. O'Donnell. Okay, thank you all. God bless. Thank you. And you will come back and finish the gospel for us, yes? Yeah, we'll find an opportunity. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.